If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Series 5 of the Netflix drama The Crown has been causing quite a stir in recent weeks. A raft of historians and commentators have been debating whether its depiction of the royal family is accurate or not, and whether accuracy even matters. But might some of the challenges of representing recent royal history actually originate with the palace itself? To find out more, Matt Elton spoke to Philip Murphy, Professor of British and Commonwealth History at the Institute of Historical Research, University of London. So, Philip, uh, you joined us today to talk about some of the difficulties and the joys, I suppose, of researching the more recent history of the British monarchy. I wanted to start by talking to you about why it's interesting and why you think it's relevant to research this particular aspect of history. I think it's I think it's very relevant for anyone interested in British politics or, or or global politics. In fact, we tend to think of the monarchy now as something that's purely ceremonial. I mean, it really isn't. Although it has an obviously an important ceremonial role and a, and a public role, it's part of the the kind of public history by which people, I suppose, measure measure their lives. They think in terms of where they were when the, the you know the. Prince Charles got married or when Diana died. It's something that everyone shares. But it is also at the at the centre of the British political system, the, the palace. And the palace has global links. King Charles is 
monarch, not just of the UK, but of 14 other so-called Commonwealth realms. And at one point or another, uh, his mother, the Queen, was sovereign of 32 different countries uh, around the world. And so that those are, are links that, that the palace has, that the palace is in regular contact with the, the sovereign's representative in those countries, the governor-general. So, in a way, it's an important and largely unseen diplomatic network. Um, we're still really getting to grips with the significance of that as historians. I wanted to talk, obviously, through some of the interconnections and the interplays between the palace, the public and the political. Do you think that, because obviously this subject is in the public eye right now because of things like the Crown and I suppose the recent death of the Queen, do you think that some of the discussions we're having at the moment reveal tensions between these three bodies, if you like? I, I, th I think there definitely are tensions. I think that at, at the moment, King Charles is trying to establish a, a public role for himself, distinguish himself from his his mother, the Queen, and, and really start afresh and, and really reinventing what modern monarchy means in, in 2022. And so his own personal history, which, which comes up very prominently in the latest series of The Crown, is, is clearly embarrassing to him. And a lot of people who are close to the palace feel very protective towards the royal family. I think it, it's a sign of the independence of Netflix that there isn't more of a row. I don't think at the moment the BBC could have got away with a series like this. The BBC itself feels far too vulnerable, really, to pressure from, from Downing Street and, and discontent from, from the palace. So you can tell that it is quite a sensitive moment, but I think there would be controversy around this series of Netflix in any case. So to talk a bit in depth about the act of being a historian and researching these kinds of subjects, how does a historian go about researching the history of the modern monarchy? Uh, what sources are available? And I suppose, conversely, what sources aren't available? I, I, I think that before I became a historian of, of the monarchy, I worked quite a lot on the history of the British intelligence community. And it, it's a similar kind of archival process. It's what you might call archaeology. You can't assume that the files are going to be there and are going to be uh, available. So you really have to look for little scraps of evidence and work sideways from them. And, and in a sense, play a cat and mouse game with the censor. You really have to assume that the Whitehall sensitivity teams that go through these files now will be trying to close and redact very large amounts of material. So you can't draw any kind of negative conclusions from the, the lack of documentary evidence. And, and I think you, you become not, not just a, a historian passively accepting what you're past, but you actively go in search of alternative sources of information and, and you, you lobby government, really, to be, to be more open. You have to be a detective, but also... You have to go into it trying to actively obtain information that would otherwise not be available had you not made those efforts. I think, I think you definitely have to. I mean, the difficulty with the history of the royal family, as with the history of the intelligence community, is that people, and particularly people in power, are very diffident about what they're prepared to say. So oral history often isn't, isn't the way round this. 
it, it, it's a case of really trying to find material in unexpected places. So, for example, a few years ago, I found a, a series of correspondence about really what was lobbying by the palace in the 1990s over the replacement of the Royal Yacht Britannia. And I was quite surprised to see this at all, but it, it, it occurred in quite an obscure file in a Welsh office series on business, Welsh business promotion. And, and, and really, that's, that's what you, you, you tend to find. You've just got to be very patient. You've got to go through a lot of files. But again, I think you've got to make the case for the need for greater openness. And, and the same principle really applies to royal files as applied to files on the intelligence community. In the, the late 1990s, I think the, the penny dropped within the security service, MI5, that, that obsessive secrecy about their historical record wasn't doing them any favours because the only time that material information on, on the security service reached the public domain, hit the press, was when there was a scandal or when there was someone, you know, leaked for self-interested reasons. And, and that generally didn't do the security service any favours in terms of its public image. So it decided quite candidly to start releasing files in a measured way to the National Archives. So, so then you can actually shape your public image. And, and I think that, you know, the same thing is true of the royal family. We, we know quite a lot, but we know it from self-interested leaks and often from, from scandals. So I, I think that it's in the interest of the palace to have a more serious, constructive conversation with historians about what is being withheld. How, how do you think the palace currently regard historians and the historical profession? I, I think they regard historians as a bit of, an, a, bit of a nuisance. And I, I think particularly when the Blur government passed the Freedom of Information Act in the 2000s, it came into effect in 2005, the palace rather panicked and felt that really all of the dirty laundry was going to be exposed to public attention by journalists and historians and really tried very hard to pull the shutters down again. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, and I, I don't... I don't get the impression that there is very much of a conversation between the, the, the palace and mainstream political historians. I mean, they tend to have their own sort of favoured favored people. But, but I don't think there's a very kind of broad range of historians that the palace is in regular contact with. So is it a fair characterisation to say that previous generations of historians had greater access to the records than currently is the case? I don't think it's necessarily true that previous generations enjoyed a golden age. I mean, you, you've had various different regimes in, in play. Before the 1990s, there was a very restrictive regime towards the release of files, particularly in the National Archives on the Royal Family. And you'd ordinarily find files closed for 50 or 100 years, often on the most trivial subjects. What you then had in 1993 was the, the John Major government passing the Open Government Initiative, 
which was really, um, it was almost a sort of gentleman's agreement between Whitehall and historians saying, look, you, you know that we, we're withholding a, a lot of stuff, which is pretty trivial. We know it. Let's have a kind of a grown-up conversation about this. And, and anything that, that doesn't risk, you know, endangering national security, we can start to release. And there was actually quite a, a sensible regime operating for a while, under which a lot of intelligence-related material, but also a lot of files on the royal family, were released. And because that also affected the way in which files were reviewed under the 30-year rule, you started to see some really quite interesting files on the royal family in the 1960s and early 70s released. And you got a, a better sense of really what the relationship was between the palace and, and, and the British government. But as I say, then with the, the passing of the Freedom of Information Act, the palace panicked and the shutters went down. And the government introduced an absolute exemption from freedom of information for correspondence with uh, the Queen and the first and second in line to the throne. Uh, and really, you, you, you're back to almost pre-1993 days in which the Whitehall vetting teams were incredibly risk-averse about releasing anything involving, particularly involving the Queen's views on, on particular matters. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. People read about the palace uh, in their newspapers in terms of personal gossip and personal scandal, rather than in terms of the, the crown, the monarchy, as a working part of the constitution. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What problems do you think this new era of cautiousness and risk aversion, I suppose, creates both for historians and, I suppose, for the palace itself? I, I think the, 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 the biggest problem it, it causes is for, is for policymakers, actually. The, the whole system around the, the Crown and the Palace is incredibly complex. The UK doesn't have a written constitution. We talk about constitutional precedents. Uh, and when we talk about constitutional precedents, we're really talking about history. But if the history isn't clear, and, and you know, Whitehall doesn't have the time or the resources to write that history on the whole, then... The, the, the parameters of what is possible, what is acceptable, are unclear. And we've, we've seen this in, in recent history. We, we saw Boris Johnson in 2019 advising the, the Queen to prorogue Parliament. There are a lot of questions about what discretion the Queen had to accept that advice. We had a situation earlier this year 
in which there seemed a possibility that a prime minister, again Boris Johnson, without the confidence of his party, might try and hang on. Again, there's a question of, well, what does the monarch do in that situation? And we really don't have a a detailed history, particularly in the, the previous reign, from 1952 onwards, about how the palace dealt with those sorts of issues. And it's not just dealing with them in a UK sense. Again, it's dealing with these issues across dozens of so-called Commonwealth realms, where where these sorts of issues do occur. Uh, And so, yes, it's very frustrating for historians. It's... It's a problem, I think, for policymakers in making sense of this this very complicated constitutional situation. And I think for, for, for the palace, again, it means that people read about the palace uh, in their newspapers in terms of personal gossip and personal scandal, rather than in terms of the, the crown, the monarchy, as a working part of the constitution. And I think that's not necessarily good for them. This is interesting because I think sometimes this debate, this discussion does get flattened into people saying, well, why should we know details about these people's private lives? But it sounds like what you're saying is actually it's much more complicated and a broader story than simply wanting to know about them as people. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And I think I think the issue of their own personal lives and personal privacy is is an interesting and complex one. I, I think there are working agreements, particularly with the press, to protect certain areas of the, the, the privacy of the royals, and particularly around the children of members of the royal family. And I think there's a, there's a bigger there's a bigger issue here as well. In a sense, the the monarchy is about a family. And and it's been seen in that way right back to you know Walter Badgett and the, and and the Victorians. He talks about how how interesting it is to have a family on the on the throne, and that is in a sense what the House of Windsor has offered. It's been the firm. It's been a group of people, and and part of the attraction of that is the soap opera side of it. So people are actively encouraged to take an interest in the positive side of the their personal life royal weddings, royal anniversaries, and and so forth. And you could argue, in a way, that it's part in in, in a way of the kind of social conditioning of of people to think about their, their country in terms of a sort of happy family. And to think about social norms in terms of that family as as the the you know the happy Christian nuclear family that the Queen has often presented herself and her 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 relations as being, and so in a sense signs that that family isn't all that happy, and so signs that that family is very much like families we know and and sometimes our own families is is kind of interesting to to people so i think it's it's very difficult to draw the line in terms of what is legitimate and what is not legitimate interest about about the royal family's affairs but a byproduct of the overzealousness of this lack of access to records is that it becomes more difficult to gauge issues of constitutional and political crisis or situations that involve that kind of those aspects is 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 that is that right 
I, th- I think that's true. And I think that when the original Freedom of Information Act was passed, there was an exemption, Section 37, uh, on correspondence relating to the royal household and members of the royal family. But there was, importantly, a public interest uh, appeal against the withholding of material on, on that basis. In, in 2005, the Guardian journalist Rob Evans applied to see uh, a number of pieces of correspondence to and from Prince Charles, so-called black spider letters. And and Evans' argument was that there was a public interest in, in those being released because Charles was effectively engaged in lobbying. Uh, And I think many people would say that there was a legitimate interest in the palace using its position to further the interests of particular, particular members of the royal family. In 2010, that public interest appeal was removed. So... There is an absolute blanket ban on the release of that, that material. And I think many people would see that as being entirely unreasonable. That actually, if you want to protect the privacy of members of the royal family, you have to draw the line of, of what is acceptable in terms of the release of historical material in a reasonable way. And not in a way that um, protects the family from what one, one might regard as legitimate scrutiny of the exercise of influence. We have touched on this, but I wanted to uh, unpack this a little bit more. Who gets to write authorised histories about the royal family um, and what access and what sources do they get access to that other people might not? We haven't had a, a, a sort of an authorised history or biography for, for a little while now. I suppose the, the most recent one was, was William Shawcross, his authorised biography of the Queen Mother. If you look at the authorised biographers in the 20th century, they're all what you might call establishment figures. I mean, Shawcross is Eton and Oxford. Harold Nicholson, who wrote the authorised biography of George V, was a foreign office diplomat and an MP. John Wheeler Bennett who wrote the authorised biography of George VI, was a, a military historian. Wheeler Bennett had been editor in the Foreign Office of German documents on foreign policy in the immediate post-war period. And I think that was significant because one of the, one of the worries of the palace in, in undertaking a biography of George VI was the role of the the Duke of Windsor and his relations with the German government. So I think it was there was a feeling that Wheeler Bennett was a safe pair of hands. I think they were all regarded as a safe pair of hands, really. And none of them were what you might call conventional modern historians. But then the profession itself was far less well-developed in the middle of the 20th century. So it, 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 they were people who... Uh, kind of had a, a natural affinity, you could say, with with the royal family, who were trusted. And then they were, so far as one can tell, given fairly open access to to materials. One, one never knows what, what precisely was held back. But they were sort of trusted to use their own discretion. And, and we know that Nicholson was told by the king's private secretary... Alan Lasalle, not to include anything that might be personally discreditable uh, to, to George V. But actually, if you read 
Nicholson's biography of George George V, and it was published in 1952. There's an awful lot of very detailed information about George V's political role in in some very controversial episodes. For example, the formation of the national government in 1931. And remember, that, that was just 20 years before the biography was published. So it, it's really like, you know, talking about what the, what the Queen was doing in, and with, with, you know, it, during the time of Tony Blair was Prime Minister. It, it's almost inconceivable to us now that one would have such a clear insight into the political operations of the palace in, in such recent a period. So they were warned off personal stuff, but then George V and George VI didn't have very sensational personal lives, so I think it, was, it wasn't a great loss. Politically, those books were very interesting, and partly because, or largely because, the Queen was on the throne for such a very long time, for 70 years, we don't have that access to, to what she was actually doing politically. One case that I wanted to get your take on that made headlines in recently was that of the author and historian Andrew Lowney, who went to a lot of efforts to make the personal diaries of Lord and Lady Mountbatten available to the public. Can you just talk us through that case um, and the sources it involved and what your thoughts are about that whole situation? It's it's a very interesting case, the, the Mountbatten diaries. And actually, it's still quite difficult to get to the, the bottom of it. But it shows you the, the complexities around the censorship of raw materials. Essentially, the, the, the diaries of Lord Louis Mountbatten, a senior member of the royal family, the final viceroy of, of India, those were part of the so-called Broadlands archive, which were given to Southampton University on loan in 1989 and which they, Southampton University then bought in 2011 with the help of about £2 million of heritage lottery funding. In 2017, Andrew Lowney, who's writing a biography of, of Mountbatten, applied to see the diaries and was refused access. He then appealed to the information commissioner who ruled in Lowney's favour, but the government then appealed against that and the situation was only really resolved about a, about a year ago. What that shows is how very complex and unclear the nature of that censorship is. Essentially, the, the Cabinet Office went in and basically censored parts of the papers, redacted parts of the papers. But, but actually... Aside from the the, the Lowney Mountbatten case, the Cabinet Office do this routinely with collections of private papers across the country. So, for example, they had gone through the diaries of Harold Macmillan, who was Prime Minister uh, between 1957 and 1963. And, for example, when Macmillan records in his diaries audiences with the Queen... Those sections are, are blanked out in the diaries that are available in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Uh, you know, I was trying to get to the bottom of the question of oh, by what right did the Cabinet Office actually do this? And I must say, I couldn't find it an, an obvious answer. Uh, there are there are ministerial directives about national security issues, 
which provides some sort of legal backing to that. But we really weren't talking about that. We were talking about conversations with the Queen. And so I, I, I think that, you know, the Cabinet Office have, have tended to go in to vet collections on a basis that, to me at least, isn't entirely clear legally. And again, they've partly been able to do this because they've been allowed to do this, because there hasn't been a pushback by the institutions involved. And I think maybe it's time there was. So is it right, just to sort of draw that story to a close, The these Mountbatten papers that we're talking about, these diaries, they're available but in a redacted form. Is that right? There are still some redactions in, in the Mountbatten diaries. The, the vast majority of the material was released digitally, but... We know that the Cabinet Office claimed that certain passages could do damage to uh, Britain's foreign relations, presumably relations with, with India or Pakistan. And there are still issues of uh, personal privacy, which can be closed under the terms of the Freedom of Information Act and have been closed. I mean, obviously, in the nature of those things, we, we, we tend not to know precisely what was closed or why, but there are still some significant redactions. We, we opened by talking about how these issues have all been brought to the foreground by the recent death of the Queen, the new season of The Crown. Do you think that there is any scope that these conversations we're currently having might change things? And how do you hope that things may change in the longer term future? I think that there's sort of an urgent piece of work to be done around the Royal Archives themselves in Windsor. And the Royal Archives uh, for the Queen Elizabeth's reign are closed in their entirety still. And we haven't had any indication about a, a review of those. That process needs to be started we need to have a, a a review of the material in the National Archives, which is is closed and has been closed. And I think we need to start a conversation about a, a proper authorised biography of the Queen, you know, maybe a, a, a multi-author work as a kind of collective project. I think the worry amongst historians is that you will the palace will simply bring in another John Wheeler Bennett, you know, a trusted establishment figure who will write something to order. And I, I think it's too important for that. I think we need a much more substantial project of historical scholarship on the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. That was Professor Philip Murphy. You can read more of Philip's thoughts on the challenges of writing accurate histories of the royal family by searching for Philip Murphy on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll also find plenty more material on the real history behind the crown. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.